from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I invite you to turn there this morning. And we're going to be finishing the, uh, finishing the chapter in just a few minutes. As you turn there, you may not have known this, but in 1892, that's right, way back in 1892, a new mineral was discovered. And upon finding the mineral, right, it was deemed to be worthless, <laughs> right? So it wasn't named, it, it was just kind of set off to the side. That is until 1937. 1937, two German miner- mineralologists, that's a hard word to say, f- kind of rediscovered it, began experimenting with the mineral, and they discovered that the mineral could be exposed to extremely high heat without losing its, its strength. And at a very high heat, it eventually would melt, and when it melted down, it would kind of retain its cubic shape, which most crystals did. After all that, they determined that it still wasn't any use for the mineral, <laughs> right? So once again, the mineral just kind of interest was lost in it. Fast forward to 1960. So we've gone 1892, 1937. Now we're in the 1960s when some French scientists began working with the mineral. And they developed this interesting technique called the cold crucible, which just sounds painful. But in this process, what would happen was the mineral would be melted down and force the crystals to grow inside the shell. But once again, the crystals were very small. And once again, they did all this and they were like, oh, nothing that we can do with it. Right? So it was discovered it was useless. It could be heated up to high temperatures, but it could be useless. It could be melted down, produce small crystals. It was still useless. Now we go to 1973. And we are now, we have gone from Germany to France. We are now in Moscow. When some uh, scientists from the institute there decided to build on the cold crucible technique and in a way that could only be described as Russian, um, elevated it to the skull crucible technique, which sounds (laughs) even worse, right? This time, greater temperature, it's higher They decided that they were able to produce larger crystals and they thought it it might be useful, but they didn't know how until four years later when scientists figured out how to synthetically grow the crystals. So they've gone from melting down the crystals to synthetically growing the crystals. Now, eventually, when you determine that you found something and it's usable, you get to name it. That's one of the great things. You look at some of the things we have named and you go, Why was it named that? Because if you discover it, you get to name it. That's just kind of an unwritten rule, I guess. So about 1977, we get something out of Russia called Jevalite, which you have never heard of. (laughs) It's kind of a letdown, isn't it? Anybody ever heard of that? You've never heard of it, except for you have. And the reason that you have heard of it was in 1980s, a company by the name of Sikorsky, how many have heard of Sikorsky crystals? You've heard of that, right? Discovered that when you took all of that together and you took those crystals, you could turn it into something else. Anybody know what you could turn it into, what we know it as now? I thought I heard somebody say it. Cubic? 
zirconia, you could have a false diamond. It took a long time to go from 1892 to 1980s to get a false diamond. But in doing that, and tying in with this morning's uh, verses, sometimes it's really, really important to be able to tell the difference between what is true and what is false, correct? I can probably guarantee you this morning, husbands, that you did not give your wives a cubic zirconium engagement ring, right? You, you, You want it to be True, you want it to be the real thing, even though the real thing costs exponentially more than cubic zirconium. You can get a one carat. Now, interesting about cubic zirconium, if you go and buy it, it'll say one carat, but then it'll translate that to what it means if you were actually buying a diamond because the carat weights aren't quite the same. You could get a one carat. All right, my wife does not have a one carat diamond engagement ring. You can get a one carat cubic zirconium ring like 25, 30 bucks. You know how much a one carat diamond ring costs. I don't even need to go into that. Because what was true is much more valuable than what is false. Now, with the diamond and cubic zirconium, let's be honest. It's important. You want to buy your wife something, or ladies, you want to go out and buy a piece of, you want to buy something nice. So you're not, it's not that you don't want to spend the money. And so you buy the diamond, you buy the real thing, or you could buy the cubic zirconium. And truthfully, if you wore one in today and you had one on one hand and one on the other, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Most people just by looking can't tell the difference. So in the grand scheme of things, and I might be in trouble for this on the way home, it doesn't really matter, does it? Diamond, cubic, zirconium, it doesn't matter. However, when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's not that it matters, it's that it has eternal significance. It matters that much. Because the difference between a true disciple and a false disciple is the difference between where you spend eternity. It is whether you spend eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you spend eternity in hell separated from Christ for all time. It is internally important. And when we come to John chapter 6 today, verse 60 down to verse 71, we're going to see that there are some people who called themselves disciples that really weren't. They were false disciples. At the same time in the crowd, there were true disciples. And we're going to see the difference between true disciples and false disciples. This is what God's Word says beginning in verse 60. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted by the Father. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So this morning, as we look at this passage, just two truths about being a disciple that I want you to notice. And first is this, true disciples commit to follow Jesus. True disciples commit to following Jesus. As these verses begin, we are, in verse 59, it appears that Jesus were make, was making these comments in the synagogue. So several people were listening, and in verse 60, it says many of his disciples heard it. Who would this be? This would be the crowd. This would be those who had the bread. This would be those who sought him the next day. This would be the twelve, which we're going to be introduced for the first time in just a minute. So when you hear right there that it's talking about the disciples, it's, it's not the twelve just yet. Okay, don't immediately go. I know we read disciples and we immediately go, you know, Simon, John, Bartholomew, you know, Thomas, you know, that's, that's where we go. In this context, it's not. It's a very large designation of people who are following him. But in this large crowd, they begin to grumble. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Something that Jesus had said had offended them. And if you look back, it's not really difficult to see what has offended them, right? What has Jesus done in John chapter 6? I mean, He, come, he, he confronts them, right, at, just at the, their crass materialistic values. Hey, just give us more bread. He said, you're, just, you're looking for signs. You want your belly full. Right? He completely disavowed their political desires, right? Let's make him king. No, he says, no, you're not going to make me king. I didn't come to start a political revolution. How about this? They refused to relinquish their control over religious matters. This is the way we're supposed to worship. You did this on a Sabbath. You can't do that. Wait a minute. Did he just say that he was greater than Moses? Moses is the greatest, and this guy that we know is born of, you know, this is Joseph's son, the carpenter. He's greater than Moses? And then the final insult, wait, we have to eat his, his, his flesh and drink his blood? Now remember, Jews, you couldn't touch a dead body, right? If you touched a dead body or a dead carcass, you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't do that. I mean, I'm just talking about you couldn't move it. We have to eat your flesh and drink your blood. I mean, they are just, they, they're offended. Jesus has, has taught, uh, taught some hard things to them. And we, we read and go, yeah, Jesus did. He, he gave it to them good, right? Well, how about us? Right? You, you hear those things that Jesus was confronting. Are, are we much more difficult? Or, or much more different? Right? We want Jesus to give us everything that we want. 
And we just wouldn't admit it. Sounds bad when a Christian goes, well, if Jesus would just do this for me, it'd be all right. Right? Jesus right now, I'm, I'm just... Jesus right now, it, 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 I'm trying to think of how to put this. has become a political pawn, I think is the best way to put it. Right? We want Jesus in our corner, whichever corner you're in. People want Jesus in their corner to validate their political views. Right? Surely we wouldn't say, Jesus, you're, you're doing religion wrong, would we? I mean, the church has never argued about what type of music we're going to sing. All right. I mean, we, we wouldn't do any of that today. We, we know so much more. We wouldn't look at a teaching of Jesus and go, man, that teaching is, is hard. Who can obey it? Yet none of you want to make eye contact with me because you all know that we do. Because some of the things, let's be honest, some of the things that Jesus taught is hard. Not everything is easy. And the crowd picks up on this and, and they start to grumble. Again, what did the, people, what did the uh, children of Israel do in the wilderness? What did they do? They grumbled. Surely, God, if you were going to take us out of Egypt, this is not the way that I would have done it. You're leading us through a desert. Don't you know food doesn't grow in the desert? There's no water. There's a better route. Why don't you? Come on, God. They're starting to grumble again. So Jesus, again, you got to keep going back to John chapter 2. He knows everything that is in people's heart. He knows what is in man. Looks at them and says, look, are, are you grumbling? Do you take offense at this? What, what, what are you doing? And then he says, look, if you think this is offensive, then wait. Verse 62 if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before. Now that's a statement that's going to be offensive. Because we got John chapter 1. We know where Jesus came from. We know John chapter 1. Jesus steps out of eternity, steps out of heaven, and becomes flesh and walks on the earth. And then He looks at Him and says, You think that me comparing my saying I'm greater than Moses? You think of me saying you need to come to me, the true bread that gives you life? You think that that's offensive? Wait till you see me ascend back to where I came from. That's really going to be offensive. And as he makes that comment, we need to understand that in the context of John's Gospel, when John talks about ascension, he always ties it into the cross. Because there's no ascension if there's no cross. Jesus is looking at him and saying, you think you're offended now. You wait till I ascend because when I ascend back to heaven, I'm going to do that because I was nailed to a cross. And for a Jew, that was incredibly offensive. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 through 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Jesus is going to be hung on a tree with other criminals. 
They're going to come around. They're going to have the Roman centurions come around in the evening to break the legs of the other two so that they can get them off the cross so that they, the ones who put the criminals, the ones who put Jesus on the cross, won't be defiled because He's hung up on a tree. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to the cross. If you're offended by this teaching, when I hang on the cross and you understand that the way to come to me for, for eternal life, that you see these signs and that you may believe in my name and in my name you may have life, to understand then that to eat on my flesh and to drape my blood is because I hung on a cross for you, that my body was broken, that my blood was shed for the new covenant. To understand that, that's going to be offensive to you. That's going to be offensive. And in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul picks up on this, right? When he writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Same issue then, same issue now. You talk to people about salvation, you talk to people about Jesus, and they like Jesus. They'll take a little bit of Jesus because a little bit of Jesus is a good thing. But you take people who like a little bit of Jesus and you take them from that Jesus and you take them to the same Jesus that is hanging on the cross because over here they are a sinner and at the foot of the cross they are still a sinner. And for them to move from being a sinner to be a saint, they have to go through Christ who died on the cross. They don't like that part. Why did Jesus have to die for me? Well, did you tell me you were a liar? Yeah, well, you're a sinner. That's why. Because what? That person and us at one time were doing the same things the crowd was trying to do earlier. We were trying to do the works of God. We can work hard enough to be saved. And you can believe that if you take a little bit of Jesus and you don't get to the cross. But when you get to the cross where He is lifted up, it becomes difficult. It becomes folly for those who look at it. They're going to look at the cross and think His plan has failed. It's going to look like defeat. But actually, when Jesus is on the cross, it is God's plan victoriously defeating Satan. And Jesus' death providing the life promised to us. Jesus says, man, you haven't seen anything. And as He says that, notice what it says in verse 60. It says disciples. Doesn't say strangers. Doesn't say opponents. Doesn't say those who are hostile to the teaching of Christ. It uses the word disciple. Meaning that the people in the crowd, if you were to walk up to them and say, are you a disciple of Jesus? They would have answered, yes. Absolutely. We followed Him. We were up on the mountain. We went to across the lake, across the sea. We're following Him. We are disciples of Jesus. They would have said yes. And then Jesus gives them this answer. And He says to them, look, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You're trying to get life through the flesh and through your work, and it won't happen. It is only through the Spirit. It is only through the Father calling you and bringing you to me through the Holy Spirit that you're going to have life. As long as you do your works, you will die in your works. And He is saying this to 
disciples. And then we come to verse 66, which is an incredibly frightening verse. After this, many of his opponents, people who didn't like his teaching, the Jews, the foreigners, the Gentiles, turned and left. That's not what it says. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That is hard to hear. Right? Jesus is just saying there's some hard teachings. Okay, Jesus, here's one. (laughs) We didn't even get four verses before we encountered one. They turned around. They looked like true disciples. They they, they talked like true disciples. They, They acted like true disciples. Everything that you... Right? This is... Showed up at church. You got the right Bible. They sing loud on every hymn. They're there. They're there at 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 the events of the church, the mission outreaches. They're they're there. Everything looks good. Then there's a hard teaching, and, and people turn and walk away. And here Jesus looks. These people, they turn, they shuffle, they drop their shoulders, and 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 they shuffle off, going. Man, we thought he was the one. We thought he was the Messiah. And they walk off going, nope, he's not it. They were false disciples. They were false disciples. And and false disciples come to Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Right? I'll come to Jesus and I'm going to pray for this. And if Jesus gives me this, then great. All right. You just, you came to Jesus because he's a genie in the bottle. False disciples who come to Jesus because they want to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Right? I am not saying that every person when you look at churches and you see prosperity churches, that everybody in there is not a disciple. But why in the world, why are the largest churches in America the ones that say that if you come to Jesus, you'll, you'll be happy, healthy, and wealthy? One television pastor said, who would want to get into something where you're miserable, poor, broke, and ugly, and you just have to muddle through until you get to heaven? I believe God wants to give you nice things. Who would want to get into something where you're miserable, poor, broke, and ugly? Right? You, you, you hear that sentence and, and, and we immediately go to the last part and go, okay, well, that's wrong. Right? God, the magic genie again, giving us nice stuff. But the first part is a lie too. The first part is much of a lie that allows us to, allows people to accept the second part. Because if they're preaching a gospel that says, you come to Jesus, He's going to make you miserable, poor, and broke, and ugly, you're not preaching the gospel. Because that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, come to me and I will give you life. Come to me and I will give you joy and I will give it to you abundantly. Come to me and I will call you out of darkness into life. The gospel does not say you're going to be miserable, poor, and broke. They don't know what they're preaching. 
But people hear that and go, yeah, yeah, that's right. And they have a hard time. What does that tell us? What hard saying of Jesus are they having a hard time dealing with? They're having a hard time accepting Jesus' teaching of pick up your cross and follow me. That's a hard teaching. They don't like it, so we'll go over here. All kinds of false disciples. They come to Jesus, right? Excuse me, they wanted Jesus to to step up and, and become king, exercise political authority, religious authority. People still do it today until they ran up to a teaching that Jesus says that they can't accept. Surely, Jesus isn't the only way to the Father. That's a hard teaching. I think there's other ways to be saved. Surely, Jesus, you, you, you know, didn't uphold uh, God-given sexual ethics and marriage and gender and, and everything. That's a hard teaching. I think I'm going to walk away. Sure, surely, uh, Jesus, you know, isn't the way, the truth, and the life. Surely, Jesus didn't talk about hell. Sure, you, I, yes, there are hard teachings in Scripture. The question is, is when we come to a hard teaching of Christ, what do we do? Do we turn away, turn around and walk away, or do we continue to follow? A true disciple continues to follow. One of the things that you hear today, if you follow any type of Christian conversation, is you'll hear the word deconstruction. A lot of deconstructed Christians out there. And it's it's one of those things where a word becomes popular, and some people mean this, some people mean that, some people mean something else. But basically what they're saying is, is, I was a believer and I grew up, but then I came to a teaching. It always comes. They come to a point where they understand Christ differently. It's amazing that when they come to understand Christ differently, they walk away from Christ. That they, they deconstructed their faith. Now look, there is nothing wrong with coming to a tough passage of Scripture. There is nothing wrong with Scripture challenging our thinking. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. The question becomes, what do we do with it? Do we do like the crowd and turn around and go, that's a bridge too far. I'm not going to follow you anymore, Jesus. I'm going to turn around and walk off. Or... Are you going to do the hard thing of struggling through the passage, studying God's Word, praying, and come out stronger on the other hand? Go through the process of sanctification, because it's a difficult process. But in doing so, continue to follow Jesus. Right? That's the question. When we're confronted with something difficult, are we going to continue to follow But here the crowd said no. And I'm thankful that John ends up penning 1 John. Because if John didn't write 1 John, I don't know that we would have had the answer to what just happened in verse 66. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John answers what happened here. When he is writing and he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they all are not of us. You wonder why perseverance to the end is so critical. The perseverance to the end 
is a marker that you are of Christ. There are others, but it is one of them. That you persevere through the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties, and you go through that process as outlined in Romans, the, the hard, hardship, the characteristics, the godliness, getting to the point of, of hope in Christ because Christ does not disappoint. And the perseverance all the way to the end, not that you're miserable, not that you're broke, not that you're ugly, but that you're saved, that you have life, that you have joy. And in that, when the difficulties in life come at you, you continue on, even if one of the difficulties is the teaching of Christ. So a true disciple is committed to follow Jesus wherever Jesus goes. But secondly, a true disciple commits to faith in Jesus. After they turn around, this group of disciples walk off. Jesus turns and for the first time in the Gospel of John addresses the twelve. And He looks at them and says, Do you want to go away as well? Y'all see the crowd. Do you want to go? You, you, you want to follow them? And Jesus is asking, not because He needs an assurance of their commitment, right? He's called them to Him. He's asking because He has given them an opportunity to respond. Once again, Jesus given someone an opportunity to respond. My teachings have been hard. Are you going to turn around and are you going to walk off? And who speaks up? Right? Peter. Right? Uh, it, it's always Peter, whether he's right, wrong, or somewhere in between. It's, it's going to be Peter, right? Like he gets a gold star for being the first one to respond. And he responds with a confession. Now, we immediately think of Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 18, right? You are the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. We, we think about that one. But there's another confession here, too, that Peter looks at him and he goes, where, Lord, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? No other teacher has the word of eternal life. We've seen other teachers. We've seen other rabbis. We've seen other messiahs come on the scene. But they don't have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? And, and the same is true today, right? There's been a lot of teachers. There's been a lot of people who have proclaimed themselves as messiah. There's been a lot of religious figures. You can go back through. You can look at Buddha. You can look at Confucius. You can look at Muhammad. You can look at Joseph Smith, other gurus. David Koresh comes to mind. You can look at all these people who have, have said that they were the messiahs. You can look at fields of study like politics and, and philosophy and science, who those areas now are basically holding themselves up as a messiah. They can save us, right? but they don't have the words to eternal life. None of them do. If they're ideologies, they're godless ideologies. If they're people, they're dead and they're in their grave. I'm going to follow someone who promises eternal life who is laying in the grave, said no one ever. Because they don't even have life in themselves to have life, and so how am I going to have life? Peter says, there's nowhere to go. There's no one else. You have the words. And then he says to him, Peter is again talking, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter gets When Peter gets it right, he gets it right. And bless his heart, when he gets it wrong, he gets it wrong, doesn't he? But he gets it right. He says, look, he says, we've believed. Believe what? 
They believe that Jesus is who He is claimed to be, that He is God in the flesh, the Messiah who has stepped out in heaven. They are seeing the signs, and they believe the signs, that through the signs and seeing that, that they know that Jesus is the one who has come to give life. We believe. Peter says, all of our dependence is on Jesus. That's what belief means. When we say we're a believer, what we're saying is every aspect of our life is dependent upon Christ. He is the Creator. We are the created. He is the Redeemer. We are the redeemed. There's not an aspect of life that is not completely and eternally dependent on Christ. And Peter says, we know, we, we, we know a personal internal knowledge of who Jesus is, not just a mere intellectual. A lot of people have intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is. But we have an internal knowledge rooted in our heart, our innermost being, that you are who you say you are. Jesus, you have the words to eternal life. We have believed and we know. And the way it is written right there, it is not a one-and-done belief in knowledge. It is a continuing, lifelong belief. Not that you keep coming back, not that you're saved over and over and over again, but you persevere to the end because you continue to believe and you continue to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, you are the Holy One of Israel, which is a Messianic designation that we don't really think about. But it's right there. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 14 through 16. The prophet Isaiah is writing. He says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. That's a fun passage verse to start with, right? He says, I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in Yahweh, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Peter looks at Jesus and says, Look, we have believed and we know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of Israel, which makes you the Redeemer. It means you are who you say you are. And that word Redeemer is such a beautiful word. Because to be a Redeemer means to buy back something that was lost. But to be a Redeemer, you had to meet some qualifications. You had to be related. You had to be willing. You had to have the ability. And you had to pay the full price. So if you were redeeming back someone's plot of land, you had to be a close relative. You had to say, I'm willing to do it. You had to have the ability to do it. And then you had to pay the full asking, the full price, the full value of that land. If you didn't meet any one of those four, you couldn't be the Redeemer. Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of God, who we know is our Redeemer. So he tells Jesus, he is confessing Jesus, we understand that you are related to us, that you have taken on flesh of all humanity, that the Word has become flesh. 
We understand that you are willing, that you are going to humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. We understand that you have the ability that through your obedience, many will be made righteous. We understand that you are going to pay the complete and full price for our sins when you give yourself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify us to your people. Peter looks at Jesus who is standing right before him and says, we know, right? We know. Do you know this this morning? Do you know? Do you believe and know that Jesus is the Holy One of Israel, the One who is the Redeemer, who redeemed the disciples, who redeemed me, who redeems you, and who redeems the whole world from their sins? There is no other. And Peter confesses, we know and we believe. Jesus, to whom shall we go? Where could I go? Oh, where could I go? Seeking a refuge for my soul, needing a friend to save me in the end. Where could I go but to the Lord? True disciples know the answer to that question because true disciples had committed in faith to Jesus Christ. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.